0: Greetings, podcast listeners. Once again, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm here today to present to you my newest topic of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today's topic will center on careers in the field of healthcare. I decided to talk about this topic because it's a pretty upbeat topic. There isn't much bad to discuss, and I can't think of anything ugly other than perhaps the cost of receiving a medical education. I've also decided to talk about this topic because I think that there are so many really great healthcare career paths out there yet, so many people likely know little if any of these other options. When most people think of a career in healthcare, they typically think of doctor or nurse. Now, I'm sure that there are a few of you out there who you've thought about being a dentist and perhaps some might have considered a career as a physical therapist, but that's likely because nearly all of us have visited a doctor, a nurse, a dentist, and Plenty of us have probably been treated by a physical or an occupational therapist somewhere or sometime along the way, but there are so many other really good healthcare career options out there and I want to try to get into all of them. If you're in a position to advise a person trying to choose a career path in general, unless that person has a social aversion to human interaction or repeatedly and uncontrollably loses control of his or her bodily functions at the sight of blood, I would encourage you to have that person look into a healthcare career. Perhaps you might be considering a change in your own career, or perhaps you simply want to know more about the different types of professionals who care for the sick and injured. If so, then please keep listening because I plan to cover as much as I can in the time I've allotted. To begin, the US needs healthcare providers. The population is aging and many Americans are living decades beyond retirement. In their advanced age, people are accumulating a number of health conditions, many of which severely curtailed one's life just a few decades ago. And these diseases and chronic maladies all need healthcare providers of every sort and variety to manage them. I've literally worked in the healthcare field for 39 years. I started out as an ER technician in 1981, and from the very beginning, I realized that taking care of people who were sick or injured was not only my calling, but was an exciting and awesome career for anyone. And just recently, I was looking through the website of the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, and nearly every healthcare career path that I queried had a positive outlook, that is, Regardless of whatever healthcare job one chooses to pursue, he or she will almost certainly have lots of opportunity for future employment. I think that it's really important for people who are considering a career in healthcare to really think about more than just the doctor and nurse options. Whereas I think that it's fair to say that most people have a fairly good cursory idea of what it is that a doctor does and what a nurse does. In all reality, most people probably don't fully understand what either of these professionals truly do for a living. That's because most high school and college students these days couldn't get a healthcare job even if they offered to work for free. Unlike when I was younger and when at 16, I was working as a technician in the emergency room, bandaging wounds, performing CPR, applying plaster molds to broken limbs. But these days, nobody is allowed to care for patients without some sort of formalized degree or training. The job I did as a junior in high school now requires an associate's level of college training. And that is something I consider absolutely ridiculous. So if young people can't get any experience working in hospitals actually caring for patients, how in the world are they supposed to know whether they might wanna commit themselves to four years of college, four years of medical school, and likely another four to five years of residency training to do something they don't even know if they'll enjoy? And let's not forget the fact that medical school is insanely expensive. And when I say insanely expensive, I'm talking 60 to $70,000 per year expensive. Over a four year period, that's a cool quarter of a million dollars then tack on another hundred or more thousand to get your college degree. And in the blink of an eye, you're in such serious debt that you don't even know if you'll ever dig yourself out. However, if you know that you've chosen the right profession and if you are certain that you've invested all of those hundreds of thousands of dollars widely into an education that you'll enjoy, then all that you've sacrificed to become a physician will most likely be worth it. But what if you didn't make the right choice? Let's consider your options. I'm going to discuss the traditional role of physician last because I know that most of you believe that you know what a physician does without me having to discuss it, but beware. I haven't seen one TV show that accurately portrays what I do for a living in all of my 29 years as a physician, so don't rely on Grey's Anatomy to influence your decision. And by the way, just because your mom or dad or a teacher told you that you're so smart that surely you must become a doctor, don't let that influence you either. Whereas I'm sure that you are very special or your son or daughter is truly one of the very best. The harsh reality is that there are hundreds of thousands of other truly very special people out there all competing for the same educational slots or jobs as you, your son or your daughter. So it would be most advisable for anyone considering a career in anything that one does his or her homework prior to jumping in with both feet. For the record, the world needs all sorts of professionals and physicians are just one of the many options available. I know plenty of really smart people who were coerced into going into medical school, in many ways pressured by a parent to blindly pursue a career path in medicine. Some, not all, of these students did very well, but because they never really had the passion like I did to actually be a doctor, they totally burned out just prior to graduation. So if that happens, what do they do next? And for some of them, they soon realize that a medical degree without residency training is hardly worth the paper printed on it. A person who burns out in their final years of medical school, following four cutthroat years of pre-med and another four arduous years of medical school, cannot practice medicine, cannot get a job in any type of healthcare, and is essentially a hostage to his or her aborted educational plan. The only options left at this point are, one, quit and pick another career, perhaps work in a biology lab or something, or two, suck it up. Apply to the shortest and least burdensome residency program out there and struggle for the rest of eternity in a career you resent. Whereas this may seem like a truly unlikely scenario, it happens more often than you might think. There are plenty of downright depressed young doctors out there who are struggling with what they had hoped and had envisioned their life would be like, relationships, children, free time, travel. But instead, they struggle with the realities of a career which consumes a tremendous portion of their life. I bring all of this up not to scare anyone, but to insert a brief reality check into the decision matrix. In my opinion, anyone considering being a doctor should also spend at least some time considering many of the other options, because there just might be something else out there that is much more palatable and enticing. Whereas it may seem like a massive leap in the opposite direction to go from doctor to nurse, I'm going to discuss this option next, because I believe that it's truly the most useful and the most diverse healthcare career out there. In fact, nursing is truly the backbone of healthcare. Every single day of the year, nurses have a greater impact on the well being of patients compared to any other type of healthcare professional. Now, I realize that for most of you whose mind is set on being a doctor, hearing me discuss nursing is probably not even registering with you. You might have already tuned me out because you already know without a doubt that you would never, ever consider being a nurse. But I'm going to ask you to open up your ears and open up your mind and just listen to me for a few minutes. First of all, you might believe that you are called to be a doctor, to care for children, women, or whomever you envisioned, but if I told you that most doctors don't spend that much time with any given patient, would that surprise you? And would you be interested in hearing me say that the ones providing the lion's share of actual hands on healthcare are the nurses? I remember having a discussion with a brilliant high school student who was absolutely positively set on becoming a pediatric oncologist. This person had her mindset and her heart set on caring for sick children suffering from life-threatening illnesses, knowing that some would die, but committing to caring for those children and their parents who were suffering. I had several conversations with her where I explained the educational pathway of a pediatric oncologist, first college, medical school, residency, and subsequent fellowship training, and what I knew was the subsequent role of the pediatric oncologist, that is, evaluate a sick child, Make a diagnosis, prescribe chemotherapy, order test, evaluate the tests, follow the patient periodically, and monitor the progress. It took a while for her brain to catch up on what I was saying, but she had the eventual epiphany that a pediatric oncologist is not at all what she wanted to be. But instead, she wanted to be the one who administered the chemotherapy, who cared for the child's nausea and other unpleasant side effects, who helped the child endure the suffering with words of encouragement and human compassion and who helped mom cope by providing whatever education that might be of benefit. It was that epiphany that made her realize that even though she thought she wanted to be a pediatric oncologist, what she truly always wanted to be was a nurse. That person is now in her final year of nursing school, and she has told me any number of times that she loves the career she chose, and she is grateful for having realized her misunderstanding. The beauty of being a nurse is that it only takes a college degree to start practicing, and thus, most students can begin making good money at just 22 years of age. The other nice thing about nursing is that there are so many options within the field of nursing, and one can easily switch from job to job without having to get additional formalized training in most cases. For example, some nurses enjoy the excitement and the chaos of the emergency room and work there for years before deciding they might rather enjoy the more peaceful and controlled environment of the intensive care unit. So after working that job for another handful of years, that same nurse might want to work in the recovery room, tending to patients who just had surgery, a perfectly viable option. And then later on down the line, that same nurse may wish to again shift gears and care for the underserved in a public health community program or a shelter. From floor nursing to clinic nursing to school nursing, there are so many options to choose from that it's the perfect career path for anyone who wants a relatively flexible life. And because patients are getting older and living longer with more and more chronic illnesses, there will always be a plethora of jobs out there for basic nurses. And for those nurses who want even more out of their career, for those who want to do more of what a doctor does, there are several advanced practice options to choose from. These do require several additional years of schooling, but most advanced practice nurses can complete this training on a part-time basis while still working as an RN. Options include nurse practitioner, nurse anesthetist, nurse midwife, all of whom are capable of working independently depending on the rules and the politics of the particular state and the healthcare group with whom one works. No matter how you slice it, nursing is a great career. It can be a physically and emotionally demanding career, but it's still a great career. And whereas it may seem a bit too tough for some, just remember the old saying, anyone can do the easy jobs, but it takes a very special person to be a nurse. Okay, now let's go on to dentistry. Now, most of you have been to a dentist and most of you probably feel pretty confident that you know what a dentist does. Perhaps you want to take care of people but don't want the responsibility of having to know everything about the entire human body or perhaps you don't want to work in a hospital or perhaps you simply love teeth for some reason. If so, then dentistry is a perfectly great option to consider. Now, most people who pursue this career receive their college education in one of the hard sciences, such as biology, chemistry, or physiology, and then they apply to any one of the many schools of dentistry throughout the country. Whereas the most common degree conferred following a four-year dental education is the DDS degree, which stands for Doctor of Dental Surgery, there are also a number of dental schools out there which offer the DMD degree, which stands for Doctor of Dental Medicine. Per the American Dental Association, there is no difference between these two degrees or what they do for a living. Both are dentists, and graduates of both schools are fully capable of practicing dentistry upon graduation and subsequent state licensure. Dentists are trained in all of the basics of not just the management of cavities and maintenance of oral health, but they are also trained in the basics of gum disease, tooth extraction, and much more. Some dentists go on to specialize in any of the various areas of dentistry, such as endodontics, which deals with the pulp roots and the nerves of the teeth. Some specialize in periodontics, which deals with the medical and surgical treatment of gum disease. Then there's pedodontics, the treatment of children's teeth, and prosthodontics, which is the arm of dentistry, which manufactures artificial teeth. An oral surgeon, sometimes called an oral or an OMF surgeon, is a dentist who spent another several years of training to do very complex surgery of the facial bones and jaw. In many cases, these highly specialized dentists are the ones who reconstruct the faces of badly injured patients who suffered a car crash or some other traumatic injury. Others are also well-trained in cosmetic surgery of the face and may perform a variety of other different procedures. And finally, there are the orthodontists, who are the ones who straighten crooked teeth via the application of braces. Getting into dental school is not easy. It's a highly competitive process. And for those who get in, plan to spend at least $50,000 per year times four years to earn your dental degree. If you want to specialize, it will cost you even more as dental subspecialty programs are master's degree programs which also may charge an arm and a leg. But dentistry is a good job. Almost all dentists work in a clinic or in an office setting and rarely do they have to work in a hospital. Most do not take call per se, meaning that dentists don't have to go into the office or the hospital after hours or at night to treat dental emergencies. Most dentists earn a healthy living and are happy with having chosen their career. The outlook for dentists is also good and it's anticipated that there will be a small increase in the need for additional dentists in the future. Thus, you'll likely find a job that will pay down all of that educational debt once you're done training. The next career path I'd like to discuss is podiatry. Podiatrists are the doctors who manage diseases and injuries of the feet and ankles. Now, I personally wouldn't want to limit my entire career to just managing diseases of the patient's feet and ankles, but podiatrists are real doctors. They do real surgery. And if you're looking to limit the area of what you wish to manage, this might be the right career for you. This world needs podiatrists because with all of the diabetes out there, there is a lot of diabetic foot disease. And with the increasingly aged population comes an increase in degenerative foot disease and a whole host of painful foot maladies. And whereas the U.S. seems to have a sufficient number of podiatrists out there to meet the needs of the population, many will retire and new podiatrists will be needed to replace them. Following a four-year college bachelor's degree, podiatry students enter a college of podiatric medicine, all of which are four-year programs and all of which confer the DPM degree, which stands for Doctor of Podiatric Medicine. The first two years of podiatry school, like medical and dental school, mostly consists of classroom work where one learns the nuances of the basic sciences which support human health. The third and fourth years are spent rotating in various clinics and podiatry offices receiving hands-on training in the diagnosis and treatment of foot and ankle diseases and illness. Following completion of the four-year podiatry program and earning the DPM degree, podiatrists are then required to serve a three-year surgical residency where they become proficient in surgery of the foot and ankle. Once all of this is complete, podiatrists work in clinics or hospitals around the country. Some go into private practice, and some work for orthopedic surgery groups managing all the foot and ankle diseases and injuries, which are referred to that particular orthopedic practice. Most hospitals have a podiatrist on staff and many take emergency room call at one or more hospitals. Podiatrists do make a good living. Their average annual salary is around $130,000. Now I looked up every one of the nine podiatry schools out there and calculated that the average annual cost to receive this training is a whopping $62,000. One of the school's annual costs was listed as $81,000 and the most affordable school was $46,000 per year. Now, I'm not sure if investing a quarter of a million dollars in addition to any and all college undergraduate costs is worth a $130,000 per year job, but that's not for me to decide. But now you have all the information you need to ponder that for yourself. Optometry is another option for those out there who think that they may want to be a doctor but want to limit what they need to know and what they need to do and what they're responsible for managing. Now, a number of people confuse optometrist with ophthalmologist the latter of which being a physician who has completed medical school and who has subsequently completed a postdoctoral residency in eye surgery. Like the pathway leading to become a podiatrist, future optometrists attend any one of a number of optometry schools in the U.S., all of which are four-year programs of study. Following completion, doctors of optometry can open up their own practice anywhere they receive a license, or they can work for a large group. Some optometrists work for ophthalmologists, but most do not. Most optometrists do not pursue additional training after they earn their OD degree, but some do choose to specialize, and there are some one-year post-optometry residency programs out there for those who wish to pursue additional training. On average, optometrists still do well, but they earn less than podiatrists, typically around $110,000 per year. But in general, schools of optometry are typically much more affordable than the other schools I mentioned. So if money is a super important factor in determining what healthcare career path you wanna pursue, consider optometry. Pharmacy is one of those healthcare career options that I must admit I do not fully understand as well as I'd like to. Whereas back when I was entering medical school, most of the pharmacists were RPHs. That is, they were registered pharmacists who attended a five-year combined college and pharmacy school and following graduation worked in hospitals and drugstore pharmacies filling doctor's prescriptions. But over the years, the pharmacist has changed. I think that nearly all pharmacy programs are now PharmD programs, the graduates of which are called pharmacy doctors. But although they have a doctorate degree in pharmacy, it's not like they practice medicine or they prescribe medications, even though they probably know more about medicine than most doctors. So what is it exactly that they do? Honestly, I'm not 100% sure. I know that they check all of a patient's prescriptions to be sure that there aren't any drug-to-drug interactions, and many of them provide basic medical education to patients who ask to learn more about what medications they're taking. I know that some hospital-based pharmacists are the ones who dose certain medications which could be toxic if not appropriately cleared in patients with dysfunctional kidneys or livers. Some pharmacists create the very complex TPN nutrition or TPN formulas consisting of fats, amino acids, carbohydrates, electrolytes, vitamins, and trace elements all administered intravenously to patients who, for whatever reason, are unable to take a nutrition by mouth. And then there are the cancer pharmacists who compound the chemotherapy agents. Handling chemotherapy agents is often as hazardous as dealing with toxic waste. And so a very specially trained professional is required to handle many of these drugs. Interestingly, when I reviewed the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, pharmacist is the only healthcare profession out there that I saw which had a negative outlook for the future the anticipated growth rate was far lower than the average growth rate for all other jobs. And thus, I'm not sure that the future pharmacist jobs will be widely available. Next, I'm going to lump all of the professional rehab specialists into the same pool to talk about them collectively. I'm lumping together the physical therapists, the occupational therapists, and the speech and language pathologists together, not because it's necessarily the right thing to do, but because I know that they often collaborate together on the same patients And there is some degree of overlap in all of the three disciplines. Physical therapists are extremely diverse. They're an extremely diverse group of physical medicine specialists who assess, diagnose, and treat a huge array of musculoskeletal disorders in children and adults. They strive to improve function, maintain function, or to restore function in those with acute or chronic illness. As more and more people are losing function due to age, immobility and deconditioning, or as a result of illness or injury, Physical therapists are in greater demand than ever before and play a critical role in maintaining and restoring physical health. To become a physical therapist, you first need to attend college and then earn your bachelor's degree, and then you apply to a physical therapy school. Physical therapist students study for three additional years in dedicated programs which lead to the degree of DPT, or Doctor of Physical Therapy. Physical therapists earn around $90,000 per year, and the job opportunities are plentiful. Occupational therapists are also rehab specialists, but their focus is more on restoring activities of daily living rather than generalized overall function. Often, occupational therapists focus on the finer motor skills and function rather than the larger muscle groups. Improving one's weakened or damaged hand function so that he or she can once again feed himself, button his shirt, and brush his teeth is an example of how an occupational therapist might work to improve one's health. They often tailor their patients' rehab so that they can once again adapt to the variations in one's home. OTs often work with PTs so that patients can achieve maximal rehabilitation. Occupational therapy requires a two-year master's degree following a four-year undergraduate bachelor's degree. Occupational therapists generally earn a similar salary as their physical therapy counterparts and the prospects of finding employment are also exceptionally promising. Speech and language pathologists are a slightly different animal but also fall into the category of rehab specialist. SLPs, as they're commonly called, treat any and all of the disorders which impair or limit speech and or swallowing. SLPs treat babies and young children who have a speech disorder, older children and adults with communication problems, patients unable to articulate their words following a stroke or other brain injury, and people who have been on a ventilator for a long time and are trying to regain their ability to swallow without aspirating food or liquid into their lungs. Speech and language pathologists are often considered the experts who determine a patient's degree of brain function following a stroke or traumatic injury. They are also the ones who subsequently work toward restoring optimal brain function and those who have been affected. Like occupational therapists, this career requires a two-year program of study following a college bachelor's degree, and a master's degree is awarded to successful graduates. SLPs generally earn a salary along the same lines as the other therapy professionals, and the job prospects also remain high. I'm now going to touch on the mental health care career fields, as there are several educational pathways which lead to a career in mental health counseling and a number of professionals which provide the service. For starters, we need more mental health professionals of all types. Unlike any other aspect of healthcare in this country, more patients who suffer from any of a number of numerous mental illnesses live their lives without adequate access to mental health care and without adequate treatment. There are many barriers to mental health care for those who need care as well as for those who help patients, and that makes this profession quite challenging at times. There had been a huge decline in the number of medical students choosing to pursue residency training in psychiatry over the past several decades, resulting in a huge deficit in psychiatrists willing and able to treat the mentally ill. However, there now seems to be a renewed interest in psychiatry. Several hundred new residency training slots have opened up throughout the country, and presently there are 1,700 new first-year residents who are specializing in this field. Whereas there is still somewhat of a problem getting U.S. medical graduates to fill our psychiatry programs Even that seems to be on the rise. Thus, there is hope that perhaps over the next generation, we will soon see major gaps in mental health care filled. Since there aren't enough psychiatrists to deal with the massive amount of mental health issues in this country, the other professionals remain in great demand. There is an alphabet soup of professionals out there who provide mental health counseling, the LCSWs, the PhDs, the EDDs, and the PSYDs. But in the end, we still don't have enough of them to meet society's needs. I must admit that I'm particularly partial to the PSYDs because I've learned a lot about this profession throughout the US military, which employs a lot of them. And thus I've worked professionally with a number of these individuals. PSYDs are what I would call the truest of the clinical psychologists as their mission is to manage mental illness. Most of the PhDs that I've met are more interested in mental health research And most EDD psychologists I've known don't really treat patients outside of an educational system, but I'm sure that there are plenty of PhDs and EDDs out there who do in fact run successful mental health practices. The reason why I'm partial to the PSYDs is because they focus primarily on diagnosing and treating mental illness. What's exciting to me is that more states are now allowing clinical psychologists to prescribe medications, and this gives them the full complement of therapy options on par with that of the psychiatrists. The biggest difference between the PhD programs and the PSYD programs, at least from a prospective student's point of view, is the fact that the PhD programs are usually tuition free and the PSYD programs cost the student an arm and a leg, somewhere around 25 to $35,000 per year for four to six years, depending on the program. There are a lot more PSYD slots available to prospective students compared to the relatively few PhD slots, and so one has a number of variables to consider when entertaining a career in clinical psychology. So what about the physician assistants? I know that there are a lot of college seniors out there who want to become a doctor, but really have no interest in committing another four years to medical school, and then another three, four, five, or even more years to a residency program, and then perhaps another one to two years of subspecialty fellowship training. PA programs have become really popular for those who want to get into the field relatively quickly and earn a decent income along the way. Most PA programs are completed in little over two years following a four-year undergraduate degree, and tuition and fees add up to around $90,000 in total. Physician assistant graduates have received the basic training enabling them to assist physicians in nearly every specialty of medicine and surgery, but undoubtedly many require some additional on-the-job training after they've been hired. Because they are assistants and don't practice independently, they cannot go off on their own to provide healthcare without a supervising or collaborative authority, a physician of some sort, but they do have as much autonomy as they are granted, often feeling as if they are practicing medicine on their own. Some states are in the earliest phases of considering granting PAs independent practice authority, however, but stand by as things are always changing. Physician assistants are replacing primary care physicians in many managed care groups and large medical practices, as it costs less to employ a PA than it does a primary care doctor, and often the service provided by the two are relatively identical. Thus, the prospective job outlook for PAs is excellent with an anticipated need much greater than just about any other healthcare profession. Now, I've Just spent all this time talking about healthcare, human healthcare, that is. And I haven't even given any attention to those who want to take care of animals. Yes, veterinary medicine. It's a great option for those who want a career in healthcare, but have no interest in human beings. I admit that I know very little about veterinary medicine, but what I do know, I'm happy to pass along. Veterinarians all attend four-year programs following a four-year college degree in any one of the basic sciences and following their completion of coursework and clinical rotations, they receive a DVM degree. Veterinarians usually earn less than any of the other healthcare professionals who hold doctorate degrees. And in fact, most veterinarians earn less than PAs and nurse practitioners, both of which typically hold only master's degrees. I've always thought it would be pretty cool taking care of cows and horses, and likely even cooler doing surgery on huge animals like lions and elephants. But as I understand it, most veterinarians care for pets like dogs and cats. And personally, that doesn't sound at all interesting to me. But if you have a soft spot for small, furry, four legged creatures, then perhaps this is the career for you. Now that I've talked about nearly every other healthcare career out there, I will now get into all that you might want to need or know about becoming a physician. This has become a complicated field to get into, considering the fact that unlike when I was younger, there is no such thing as an entry-level job where high school and college students can get an idea as to whether or not they truly feel that a career in medicine is right for them. Instead, future medical students find themselves competing against the other throngs of potential applicants volunteering at the front desk of a hospital or a nursing home where one gets very little, if any, real patient care experience. Many get part-time research jobs working with microbiology specimens or small rodents, hoping to get a leg up on the other equally qualified medical school applicants who have no research experience. Just to be clear, doing entry-level research does not typically make one a better doctor years down the line, but it does look good on an application. The preliminaries of getting into med school can be daunting and both physically and mentally exhausting the college GPA is so important, as is the MCAT entrance exam, that even the smallest drop in academic success could be the difference between getting in and taking a gap year. Now, I've become well acquainted with that gap year, which once was the last thing anyone ever wanted to be forced to take. And it's now become something that many, if not most people actually plan on. Whereas a gap year once meant I didn't get it in and I'm taking these master's level science classes to boost, boost my GPA. A gap year is now one, something that one uses to gain valuable work experience in order to become more competitive when actually applying to med school, or two, a time when one takes a break from the rigors of four years of grueling undergraduate study, widely interpreted as I'm not yet ready to commit to being adult, or three, an international endeavor where one grows out of his or her hair, lives on a shoestring budget and travels the world. Regardless of what that gap year actually means, More and more people are taking a gap year prior to applying to medical school and committing to that inevitable decade of additional training and study. Whereas the traditional customary educational pathway to becoming a doctor involves attending any one of the many four-year U.S. medical schools, more and more physicians are receiving their medical degrees from schools of osteopathic medicine and in foreign medical schools in the Caribbean and abroad. All options are acceptable, and each one of them eventually allows a successful graduate to practice medicine in the U.S., but there are a few things to consider. For starters, there are 141 U.S. schools of medicine which grant the M.D. degree, 35 U.S. schools of osteopathic medicine which grant the D.O. degree, and dozens of Caribbean medical schools which offer the M.D. degree. Each of the US MD schools will teach you all that you need to know to become eligible to apply for any of the residency programs in medicine or surgery in the United States. The same is true for the schools of osteopathic medicine. Whereas many, perhaps most, people in this country don't even know what a DO is, a DO is a fully trained, fully licensed physician and surgeon able to practice medicine and surgery in any state of the union following licensure and is eligible to receive specialty and subspecialty training at any postdoctoral institution in America. The differences between MD and DO are largely of historical importance. Back in the late 1800s, there were no antibiotics, there was no such thing as blood transfusions, and surgery was largely limited to amputations of mangled or gangrenous limbs. All physicians were MDs and the practice of medicine was in large part quackery, with acceptable remedies including tobacco smoke enemas and prescription of tapeworm therapy. Electrical shock therapy, radioactive elixirs of radium, and toxic mercury compounds were all part of the MD's prescriptive plan. In 1892, an MD named Dr. Andrew Taylor Still began teaching the diagnosis and treatment of musculoskeletal maladies, including manipulation of the spine, stretching, and other modes of physical medicine. He called his new brand of healthcare osteopathic medicine, and he opened a school where doctors earned the DO degree. However, over the ensuing decades came huge advances in medicine overall, accepted by both MDs and DOs. The quackery was largely abandoned by all, and physicians became more evidence-based. Of course, there were far more MDs and MD institutions than DO institutions, and so understandably, the MDs remained the physicians of choice. These days, it's virtually impossible to distinguish between a DO and an MD. And whereas some DOs continue to add musculoskeletal manipulation to their therapeutic armamentarium, it's likely that there are actually more MDs who practice manual manipulative medicine than DOs. And thus, whereas the two letters remain different, the physicians themselves are virtually the same. Whereas I have great confidence in the MD and DO schools within the United States, one should be wary if considering attending a Caribbean school of medicine. Going to a Caribbean medical school can be very enticing. They're extremely expensive, but nearly anyone who has enough money will get accepted to a Caribbean medical school. Many of the programs accept hundreds in the first year, hundreds of medical students to their programs, yet it's not at all uncommon to have a 50, 60, or even 70% attrition rate during that first year. Thus, most of the students who paid perhaps $70,000 for that first year of medical education fail out within several months. Of course, they're all welcome to pay another $70,000 and try again, and some do. And for those who make it through the first two years of classroom training and are now ready to enter their clinical rotation years, there is often no hospital where these Caribbean students all attend. In general, they're all parsed out one month at a time to hospitals all over the United States doing whatever they can to gain some clinical experience. There are no guarantees that these medical students will be allowed to see or do much of anything. And often these medical students get seriously shortchanged. Whereas in the end, those who make it through earn the MD degree, I'm not sure that the cost and the overall educational experience is worth it. In my opinion, I would only choose to attend a Caribbean medical school if I was denied for two or more consecutive years from a number of different US MD and DO schools, and if I was still hell-bent on becoming a doctor. So finally, once one becomes a physician, and once one earns his or her MD or DO degree, What comes next? Well, for starters, there's residency training. A newly minted doctor can do nothing with that degree unless he or she has completed a residency of some sort. Early on, usually midway through the third year of medical school, most medical students partition themselves into one of two camps. They seem to self-select, identifying themselves as either future surgeons or future non-surgeons. Both will have to complete a minimum of three postdoctoral residency years. Surgeons always have to complete at least five years of residency training. And this is all before they're allowed to practice anything independently. Some, however, pursue even more training for a variety of reasons, but eventually all physicians are turned loose on society and are allowed to practice medicine and or surgery. There's plenty of opportunity for new physicians out there, especially in smaller communities. Generalists are becoming a precious commodity, and thus it might behoove one to consider a broad spectrum practice of either medicine or surgery rather than focus on super refined subspecialization. Most physicians work up to 60 hours per week or more, but some specialists are required to take a lot of on-call responsibility, committing them to several additional evenings, nights, and weekends where they can be pulled back into the hospital at any given time. Many physicians do not have a set schedule and are often thus expected to start their workday early, stay late at the office or hospital long past when they were expected to be off, and many work one or more holidays each year. Doctors will, however, always earn a good living regardless of what specialty or subspecialty one chooses. Even though their hours can be long and arduous, and there can be a lot of personal hardships along the way, after all these years, I still personally believe that I chose a great career. Am I thrilled with all the changes? No, but life always changes, and that's what this series and all these podcasts are about. At this point, I think that I've covered just about everything worth talking about with respect to careers in healthcare. I guess that my most important take home point is that there are a lot of great career opportunities in the healthcare field. And even if people are certain that they want to become physicians, I still urge them to seriously look at other career paths. At very least, learning what others do in the field of healthcare may give future doctors more respect for those who didn't choose to pursue an MD or DO pathway. And so that concludes my time with you today. I hope that you all enjoyed this podcast, and hopefully, you'll choose to listen to my next subject on healthcare in America the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly.